so, so there were these three blondes. <laughs> they're, <laughs> they're on a nature walk, okay? They're out, in this, they're, they're, they're out in the middle of nowhere. They're in this nature walk. These three blondes. They come across these tracks. And, and this one looks at it, and she was like, look at these tracks. You know, I thought, these are dog tracks. And one of the other blondes looks at her and said, that's not dog tracks. You've lost your mind. She gets to looking at them a little bit. She said, those are deer tracks. All right, now, yeah. The third one walks up and like, both of y'all are wrong. I said, listen, now, I'm the smartest one of this group. Can't you tell by the space between them, the, the length between them, the depth of it? These are bear tracks, y'all. So they all get down there, and they're looking, and they're enamored by the knowledge of this one, and they're all looking at these tracks, and they all three got ran over by a train. <laughs> you got to have knowledge, guys. The Bible says itself that we are, our, us Christians are dying because of the lack of knowledge, correct? We've got to stay focused, though, guys. We've got to stay focused on the Great Commission, amen? That's something that we always talk about. We're not going to get enamored with all of this. We're going to stay focused on the Great Commission. Again, that's why we read it every Sunday. Let's stay focused on that. And again, this church has done an amazing job. Thank you all very much. You all have not gotten distracted with the study of Revelation. In the last two months, we have covered the book of Revelation, all the way to the end of chapter 19. Uh, this sermon today will be our last sermon on this series. And, and honestly, I'm, I'm, I'm a little sad, a little sad and relieved at the same time. I've really enjoyed this series, though, guys. I hope you all have, too. It's been fun for me. It's been awesome. I've, I've learned a lot. Uh, you know, I thought I really knew Revelation, and then after you preach Revelation, you, you get to know it a little bit more. So it's been exciting, but I, like I said, I've enjoyed it. I hope you guys have too. If you've got your Bibles, get them out and follow along. Take notes on this. Uh, today, we're going to go from the end of 19 to the end of the book. Okay, we're going to try and finish this up today. Two weeks ago, we finished up in chapter 19 with the celebration after the fall of the great prostitute. This celebration was known as the Wedding Feast of the Lamb. Uh, of course, to give you just a brief review, wedding feast of the Lamb, all of God's children go up, have a feast with Jesus in heaven. Amen? That's what we've got. So we're going to start right there. We're going to go to uh, Revelation 19. We're going to pick up at verse 11 through 13. Then I saw heaven open, and a white horse was standing there. Its rider was named Faithful and True. For he judges fairly and wages a righteous war. Okay, I'm going to do each one of these verse by verse, so don't get ahead of me. If y'all can remember in Revelation chapter 6, that's when the rider on the white horse came out, which was the Antichrist, right? Okay, this is what he was trying to do. He was trying to look like Jesus, right? That's what he was trying to do. Just remember that when you go through this. I don't want you to get confused on the two white riders, right? One chapter 6, the Antichrist. This is the real deal, okay? This is when he's actually coming back. In verse 12, I want to read this. His eyes were like flames of fire, and on his head were many crowns. A name was written on him that no one understood except himself, okay? This was the same vision that came from uh, chapter 1 that John was given, those flames of fire, the eyes with the flames of fire. It's the exact same vision. It goes back and forth. So from chapter 1 to chapter 19, it's the exact same thing. Verse 13, uh, he wore a robe dipped in blood, and his title was the Word of God. Jesus is about to go into battle right here, guys, but I want you to notice this robe covered in blood. You know, if somebody comes up to you and they got blood all over your shirt, the first thing you're going to think of is, whose blood is that? 
Where'd that blood come from? It's a little confusing because this battle had not begun yet. No punches have been thrown, but he has blood again on him. So whose blood is this that's on Jesus' robe? And in Isaiah chapter 63, Isaiah prophesies that the Messiah will tread the, will tread the winepress of the wrath of God on the earth. So this blood belongs to all those who followed Satan and denied God. So right here in this moment, right here in verse 13, Jesus is letting Satan and his followers know, I'm responsible for the wrath that has come to you and your followers thus far. So all the scrolls, all the trumpets, all the bowls, that was Jesus. He's basically sitting there in that moment saying, you know, I'm the man. This blood that's on me, this is, this is the wrath that we've put on you. It's kind of a mark, right? Like when he shows up to this battle and this blood's on him, it's like he's trying to, and he's not trying, he is, he's scaring the evil one. This is what I've done so far. You're next, right? I had a teacher one time. Her name was Miss York. She was one of my favorite teachers of all time. Miss York, um, she had this big old paddle, okay? And, 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 it, and it had people's names on it. When you got a whooping, you got your name on it. And I'll never forget when I first walked in her class, she walks out, first day, by the way, I mean, this is in the sixth grade, guys, I mean, I'm just a kid, right? First day, she walks out, she grabs that paddle, and she walks up to the podium, and she slaps it with it. And she turns around, she shows it to everybody, and she said, if you can get out of here this year without your name on here, it's a success. She'll tell you to this day, my name is on that paddle more than anybody. <laughs> anybody. But here's the reason why. Now, I had her in the sixth grade, the eighth grade, and my sophomore year in high school. So it's a little unfair, but yeah. That's what Ms. York was doing. She was trying to intimidate us with this paddle. Jesus walks up, letting them know this is the blood of the people that you have manipulated. This is your people, and yours is fixing to be on here too. Same situation. Let's go to Revelation 19, verses 14 through 16. The armies of heaven, dressed in the finest and pure white linen, followed him on white horses. From his mouth came a sharp sword to strike down the nations. He will rule them with an iron rod. He will release the fierce wrath of God, the Almighty, like juice flowing from a winepress. On his robe at his thigh was written this title, King of all kings and Lord of all lords. Real quick, I want to make a point. A lot of people, you know, I grew up, people said, you know, if you get a tattoo, it's a sin, you're going to hell. Jesus has got a tattoo written on his thigh right here in Revelation. I just want to point that out to you guys. Amen. I just want to point it out to you. And listen, I'm not for or against tattoos. I'm just saying, there's, it's not a big deal. Like, come on, guys, really? Y'all think, think Jesus ain't going to let somebody in the door. I know nobody in this church thinks that. But because you walk up and you've got a, a CW tattoo on you, you know, you're not going to get in the door? Like, really? Come on, y'all. Seriously. Jesus has one. We all have an image of Jesus, guys. Uh, for, some of us, for some of us, it's peaceful, perfectly brushed hair back Jesus. For others, it's the bearded Jesus. Or maybe for some of you, it's like Will Ferrell on Talladega's Nights. It's you know, sweet, eight-pound, six-ounce six, eight baby Jesus, right? Yeah, some of you, that's what it is. But this description here in chapter 19 is the vision that we need to have this is Jesus in all his glory. This is warrior Jesus. That's what this is. Blood on the robe. 
fire in the eyes, sword coming out of his mouth, which we know is the word of God, right? This is Jesus going to battle. Y'all, this is what we're going to see. The next time you see Jesus, if you're alive on this earth and the rapture comes, this is what you're going to see. It's not going to be baby Jesus. It's not going to be perfectly combed, brushed back hair Jesus, you know. First of all, I just don't see Jesus looking like that, by the way. Jesus lived out in the wilderness. He wasn't all pretty. He was, you know, he's a rough-looking dude, I think. I think he's a cool-looking dude. Uh, after this, probably in a matter of seconds, Jesus will destroy Satan's army and throw the beast and the Antichrist into the eternal lake of fire. Now I want to move on to chapter 20. We're going to look at uh, 21 through 3. Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven with the key to the bottomless pit and a heavy chain in his hand. He seized the dragon, that old serpent, who is the devil, Satan, and bound him in chains for a thousand years. We're going to stop right there. I don't know if you guys noticed, but we are now in chapter 20 and Satan has not been mentioned since chapter 13. He's been getting the beast and the Antichrist to do all of his dirty work because he's a coward. From 13 to 20, we ain't heard from him, but we've heard all about the beast and the Antichrist, right? And the great prostitute and all this other stuff, but where's he been? He's a coward. Satan, to me, to put it in my perspective, he's like Scar on the Lion King. You know, the hyenas did all his work. He's like Ursula in, in, in uh, uh, The Little Mermaid. The eels did her work. You know, that's, that's what he reminds me of. He's just this one. Somebody laughed. The rest of you didn't. <laughs> that's who he is, guys. He's a coward. That's what Satan does today as well, guys. He does this to us today. Satan knows he's no match for Jesus, so he uses us. Just again, like he used the beast and the Antichrist right here in Revelation, he's going to use us, guys. Let's look at verse 3. The angel threw him into the bottomless pit, which he then shut and locked so Satan could not deceive the nations anymore until a thousand years were finished. Afterwards, he must be released for a little while these thousand years that satan will be casted into the bottomless pit is known as the millennial reign or the millennial kingdom this is described in verses four through six but i'm going to go ahead and break it down for you guys in some simpler terms for a thousand years jesus will come back and rule the entire world as king he will do this from the great capital which will be jerusalem that will be the capital of the world at that time this millennial kingdom will be sinless because satan is in the bottomless pit. He will not be able to scheme or manipulate anyone, so sin will not be a problem. The world will be at complete peace during this 1,000-year reign. I need you to understand, this is after the wedding feast, right, that we talked about in chapter 19 last week. So this is a 1,000-year honeymoon is basically what that is for us. It's what it is. It's a 1,000-year honeymoon. Let's pick back up at verse 7, 27 through 8. When the thousand years come to an end, Satan will be let out of the prison, let out of his prison, excuse me. He will go out to deceive the nations called Gog and Magog in every corner of the earth. He will gather them together for battle, a mighty army as numberless as sand along 
the seashore. That reminds me of Lord of the Rings, like Mog and Magog. Am I right? Anybody else think that? Any other nerds in here like Lord of the Rings? It was on yesterday. I started to watch it, and, and Caroline was sitting in there. You know, Caroline's my younger one, and, and, and you know, it got to a pretty rough spot, and I kind of got chewed out. I had to change the channel, but I like Lord of the Rings. Now, why would God allow Satan out of the bottomless pit? The reason why this is, guys, after a thousand years, so I need you to grasp this. It's a thousand years, Jesus will reign on the earth. Nothing but peace, nothing but harmony, no sin, right? But then he's going to let Satan back out. The reason for this is this is God's game plan. He has a game plan for this, guys. One of the, I can remember as a kid, the first Super Bowl that I ever watched was in 1990. It was the New York Giants against the Buffalo Bills, and Bill Parcells was the coach of that team. Uh, the Buffalo Bills were favored by 13 points in this game, which was the largest spread uh, that had ever occurred in Super Bowl history at that time. Buffalo Bills had a great football team. They had Jim Kelly, Andre Reid, Thurman Thomas. None of y'all know who I'm talking about. Some of you men know who I'm talking about. Very good offense. They were explosive that year. Almost nobody could beat them. I think they lost two games, and they lost both of them by a combined of three points. So the Giants, on the other hand, had lost their starting quarterback, which was Phil Sims, and they had a backup quarterback that had to come in. Nobody expected them to win this game. They thought it was a major accomplishment that they even got to the Super Bowl. For some of y'all, to help you remember which Super Bowl this was, Whitney Houston sang the national anthem. The best national anthem I've ever heard. Chris Stapleton comes in second this past year, by the way. He was amazing. Anyway, we're going to get back on track. So the reason I bring this up, they were not supposed to win this game. There was no way they were going to win this game. But Bill Parcells had an excellent game plan, and that was to slow down that offense, run the football, and play strong defense. They won the game. And the way they won the game was they made it all the way to the end. Buffalo misses a, a field goal at the very end of the game. Giants win. That was the that game plan. That game plan is in the Hall of Fame, by the way, the defensive game plan. God's got a game plan for all of this. And the reason that he does this, thousand years goes by, let Satan back out. Here's the problem that we had. In that thousand-year reign, no one could sin, right? We just talked about that. No one could sin, but that doesn't mean that people still didn't have hatred in their hearts. They couldn't sin. They can't sin with action, but they could sin in their hearts. Some of them still had a bad heart posture, if you will. So what God is doing here is he's allowing Satan to come back so he can see who's really on his side and who's on Satan's side. There's still people that have to be disassociated from the new Jerusalem that's coming down. The reason I bring that up, it's a shame. For those of y'all who have been here through this whole series, how many times did God give his people a chance to change? And now he still has to do it. And we'll get to that here in a minute. This will be Satan's last stand, by the way, when he comes back. Uh, I want to pick that up in chapter 20, verses 9 through 10. And I saw them as they went up on the broad, on, oh, excuse me, oh, yeah, on the broad plain of the earth and surrounded God's people and the beloved city. But fire from heaven came down the attack, on the attacking armies and consumed them. Then the devil who had deceived them, was thrown into the fiery lake of burning sulfur, joining the beast and the false prophet. 
There they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. Ball game. Ball game. It's over. Drop the mic. Whatever you want to call it. It's done, right? God's judgment, the problem is, is you would think this is over, right? Satan's done. You've got the Antichrist. You've got the beast in there. We're finished, right? God still has judgment. One more round of this. Let's look at verses 11 through 12, 20, 11 through 12. And I saw a great white throne and the one sitting on it. The earth and sky fled from his presence, but they found no place to hide. I saw the dead, both great and small, standing before God's throne. And the books were open, including the book of life. And the dead were judged according to what they had done, as recorded in the books. When I was growing up, I'm going to do another football analogy, just get over it. When I was growing up, playing high school football, my dad would literally record the games. And if he didn't, he had somebody else that would record the games and he'd get it. And I'd be finished with the game. And most of you guys that have played football, you're exhausted, right? Like after a game, you've given everything physically, mentally that you can. You're exhausted. And I get home, I'm ready to go to bed. And dad would be like, no, we got to watch film. My dad would take me in the living room and put the game film on. And we would watch that for the next hour. All the good things I did, all the bad things I did. That's what God's going to do in this moment, guys. The dead were judged, they were judged according to what they had done as recorded in the books. Everybody in here, I need you to understand, God has a game film on you. He has that. And he's going to watch it right here. Better make sure you got some highlights on there. Amen? Yeah. Don't sit the bench. I want to pick back up verse 14. Then death and the grave were thrown into the lake of fire. This lake of fire is the second death. And anyone whose name was not found recorded in the book of life was thrown into the lake of fire. Looking at verse 14, death and the grave. The grave is hell, by the way, just to give you a heads up. Some of y'all's translation may actually have that in the Bible, but this is new living. That's what it's saying. The grave is hell. What is the second death? The first death is the death of the body, the flesh, correct? The second death is the total death of the soul and the spirit that resides inside of you. So right here, the second death. The lake of fire is the second death. Obviously, we know this. We pass away. Our soul goes to heaven. Amen? It's the direction. Okay. These people, guys, I need you to understand this. See, we have hope and faith in Christ that when I die, when you die, that our soul lives on. And we're excited about that, right? Get to go to heaven. God's, you know, Jesus is, is, is getting mansions ready for us, right? He's getting that. That's, that's said. He's getting mansions ready for you in my father's house. There are many houses. I'm preparing one for you. So we're excited about that. Can you imagine the people who die this second death? There's no hope. There's no faith. I want you to think right now. Could you imagine if you died right now? Nothing. Nothing. 
I thank God every day for that hope and that faith. And that came from his son, Jesus Christ. It's something that we have to continue to give thanks for. And, you know, that's the thing, like that video said, we don't celebrate the resurrection one Sunday out of the year, right? Every Sunday, guys. It's because of that we have that hope, we have that faith, that there is life after death. Unfortunately, not for these people. It's a sad thing. Now I want you to notice what has been thrown into the lake of fire in these last few verses. The beast, the antichrist, Satan, death, the grave, which is hell, and all who are not in the book of life. So finally, evil has been wiped completely off the earth. Everything has been cleared for God to start his new and final kingdom. That's where we're going to pick up. We're going to go to chapter 21, verses 1 through 2. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the old heaven and the old earth had disappeared, and the sea was, all, was also gone. And I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down from God out of heaven like a bride beautifully dressed for her husband. Here in verse 1, it says that there's a new heaven and a new earth. I need you to understand that new heaven, that doesn't mean there's a new heaven where God's throne is. This is the atmosphere. Some translations will actually say that. And if you go look it up in the Greek and also in the Hebrew, it's the atmosphere. So what this is telling you is that we're going to have a whole new universe is what we're going to have. Okay. Uh, notice uh, the word new. The Greek word for new means different. Okay. So it's not like he's going to take the world that we live in now and make it better. We're going to have a new earth and a new atmosphere. Understood? Not the same one. In fact, the new one will have no water because it says that the seas were also taken. We won't need water on this new earth, right? Jesus is all we need. All we need. In verse 2, that new Jerusalem, this is a perfect place, guys. It's like the Garden of Eden, but this is not just the return to the garden. It's a new garden. It's a step forward into a new Jerusalem, a great city where human cultures and all diversities work together in peace and harmony before God. I want to continue on to 21, verse 3 through 7. I heard a loud shout from the throne saying, look, God's home is now among his people. He will live with them, and they will be his people. God himself will be with them. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and there will be no more death or sorrow or crying or pain. All these things are gone forever. And the one sitting on the throne said, look, I'm making everything new. And then he said to me, write this down, for what I tell you is trustworthy and true. Can y'all imagine no more pain? No more suffering. No more cancer. No more pandemics. No more hunger. No thirst. No pride. No selfishness. No hatred. No gossip. No fighting. No war. No murder. No drugs. No abuse. No anxiety or depression. No money. Amen? Amen. This will get you. No bills. Amen. No social media. Amen. 
No technology. No Democrats. No Republicans. No China, no Russia, and guess what? No United States of America. No politics. One world under God. That's what we'll have at this point, guys. Can you imagine a world like that? I, I can't because of the world we live in. I can't imagine it. Since the day you were brought onto this earth, you can't imagine that. Because this, the things that I just listed off surrounds you on a daily basis. On a daily basis. The rest of chapter 21 and 22 describe the new Jerusalem. I'm not going to go over the rest of 21 and 22. And, and I'll tell you why. Because you can go read it yourself. I got something else that we need to talk about. But I highly encourage you. Go read 21 and 22. It's the last two chapters of Revelation. It's really cool to see the New Jerusalem and how it's described. It's a beautiful thing. Y'all go read it yourself. For the rest of this morning, I want to discuss a topic that has been brought up to me more than anything else during this Revelation series. Every week I have received a message, text messages, emails. I've had conversations with our congregation both here and online about this topic, the rapture of the church. So many times people, <laughs> Michael, how's it going to be? You know, when are we going to go? What's it going to look like? You know, what, what, what's, how's this going to work? What's the time frame on it? Is it going to be pre-tribulation, mid-tribulation, or post-tribulation? My answer to all of them is this. I have no clue. And anybody that says they do is lying to you. Now, I'm going to tell you my belief. I'll tell you my belief, what I believe. Okay? I believe that we will be raptured before the tribulation. I do. I, I, I truly believe that. And I've got scriptures. I've got things to back this up. And that's what I really want to talk about here at the end of this. Christians that study the rapture believe it to be one of three ways. Again, that's pre-tribulation, mid-tribulation, or post-tribulation. For those of y'all that have missed this series, I'm going to pull up, it's a, it's a timeline that we had so I can kind of explain that. Can you pull that up for me, Nick? Okay, this, the, you know, y'all seen this timeline, but the seals, the trumpets, the bowls, right? That's your seven-year tribulation period, right? Okay, my belief is that we will be raptured over here, okay, before the tribulation ever starts, before the, the trumpets, the bowls, you know, the, the seals are broke, all those things, I feel like we will be raptured, we will not have to go through any of that, but then there are some people that believe mid-tribulation, they believe that somewhere here in the middle, okay, is when he's going to come back, and most people say it's at the trumpets, is where most people, most scholars study it at, right? But again, nobody knows, okay? I need you to understand that. And then some say post. The only one I completely disagree with is post. And I'm going to give you the reasons for that why. I believe that the next prophetic event on God's calendar is the rapture. So again, therefore, I believe pre-trib. I'm a pre-trib believer. There's a lot of scripture to support my belief on the rapture coming before the tribulation period. I want to give you guys some, some ones that I suggest that you go look up. Uh, I'm going to pull those up, but then I also am going to give you three scriptures that, that I hold dear, three verses that I hold dear that, that, that put me in that direction. But Nick, could you pull that one up? That's got, yes, okay. 
Screenshot this. Go read them. Matthew 25, John 14, 1 Corinthians 15, 1 Thessalonians, just read the whole book, okay? And then 2 Thessalonians 4, Titus 2, and Revelation 3. Now, there's more than that. There's more than that. But these are the ones that, that I take and to me just make perfect sense of the pre-tribulation. Perfect sense. Some of these I'm going to read to you. I'm going to give you all just a second to take a picture of that. Write those down if you want to. Give me a drink while you do that. Hey, Nick, pull up 1 Thessalonians 1.10, please, sir. And they speak of how you are looking forward to the coming of God's Son from heaven, Jesus, whom God raised from the dead. He is the one who has rescued us from the terrors of the coming judgment. Sorry, that one verse really is all I need, but I got two more I want to give you. The coming judgment. What's the coming judgment? The tribulation. The book of Revelation. I mean, that's what it is, right? If y'all notice real quick, I got to go back to something real quick. Nick, could you go back one more to the one that's got the, the books and the chapters? If y'all notice, I didn't put verses on these, okay? And I'm going to tell you why. And I, and I highly recommend you do the same thing on the three verses I'm going to give you. And when we talk about this all the time, you don't just read one verse. You read before it, you read after it, okay? I'm giving y'all what I believe, the verses that I take with me and I grasp hold of that give me my belief of pre-tribulation. I want you to do your own studying, you go read all these chapters, okay? You come up with your own thought process on this. You listen to the Holy Spirit, and you get it interpreted the way that he wants you to have it. Do you understand me? Because, again, we talk about this all the time. Not everybody is going to get the book of Revelation right. We're not going to be the same. Understood? There's some of us in this room, I promise you right now, I promise you, and I know this because I've had conversations with y'all, I love you, but I disagree, but I love you, but some of y'all have already said you don't agree with my thought process on this. That's okay. Because again, when we get there and we're sitting at that table at the great feast, I'm not going to argue with you. We're there. And it's like I said a few weeks ago, whether you're pre-trib, mid-trib, or post-trib, we can all agree on one thing. Jesus wins. Amen? Okay. Sorry. Let's move on. Amen. Thank you. I appreciate that. Got one fan in here. Thank you very much. <laughs> one person that grabbed that. Let's go to 1 Thessalonians 5, 9. For God chose to save us through our Lord Jesus Christ, not to pour out his anger on us. And then my favorite one, and the reason that I bring this one up is because it's in the book of Revelation. It's Revelation 3.10. Because you have obeyed my command to preserve, I will protect you from the great time of testing that will come upon the whole world to test those who belong to this world. That's in the book of Revelation. At the beginning, by the way, it's chapter 3. I feel like he gave us that scripture for a reason because he knew what came after that was going to scare the mess out of us. There's also... Three examples in the Bible where God saved his people before he released his wrath on mankind. Pull that up for me, Nick, please, sir. Genesis 5 through 10, God saves Noah and his family from the great flood. And he told him he was going to do that. Right? Genesis 18 through 19, God saves Lot and from, uh, excuse me, it's supposed to be from Sodom and Gomorrah. Right? Okay. And then the last one. 
God saves Rahab and her family at Jericho. That story gets me choked up all the time. And I'm going to tell you why. Most of y'all know that story. She, Rahab, the prostitute, helped Joshua's men come in and spy at Jericho. When they left, they said, because you helped us, because she hid them from the soldiers of Jericho that were looking for them, said, we will make sure that your life is spared. And, and the reason why they did that is because she told them that she believed in God. Okay? Now, here's what I need you to understand. The walls come down at Jericho, right? I think we all know the story. Marched around it seven times, didn't make a sound. All of a sudden, trumpets and, and a loud scream, and the walls fall down. Rahab and her family did not come out until after the walls fell down. She lived in the wall. So I need you to picture this. The entire wall all the way around Jericho falls down. The only thing left standing is about this much. Well, it's bigger than that, but you know what I'm saying. And that's where her apartment is. So this story, what I, the reason I bring this up, I could be, could be, could be a little bit on the mid-tribulation side. Now, I still believe in, in, in pre-trib, still believe in that. But I wouldn't be surprised if it, it's a little bit of mid-trib, and I'll tell you why. Because that's what happened right here with Rahab. Everything came falling down around her, but God left her standing. He protected her amongst everything else. The promise that we receive from God, I need y'all to really grasp this today because so many people freak out about pre-trib and mid-trib. They, they freak out about it. The promise that he gives us in all those scriptures that I've given you today, let's say we're not pre-trib. Let's say he doesn't come right at the beginning. It's a little bit of mid-trib. His promise is he will protect us just like he did Rahab. When everything falls around us and everything comes crumbling down, he'll protect us. We'll be fine, just like Rahab. you got to take that home with you today. Don't let revelation, don't let tribulation, don't, don't, let, don't let this be something that consumes you. You're going to be fine, I promise you. We're all going to be fine. I want to close today with a question in two verses. If the rapture was today, are you 100% confident that you would be leaving this earth with the church, with God's people? you 100% confident in that. Do you have any thought that you may not be? I assure you, just like Noah, Rahab, Lot, God does not want to leave his people behind. Again, look at all the chances he gave these people in Revelation, guys. So many times he tried to get them to turn to him. But I need to under I got to be honest. As much as he loves us, there comes a point where time's up. Even with God as graceful and as patient and as loving as he is, there comes a point, it's too late. 
Let's go look at Revelation 22, 10 and 11. Then he instructed me, do not seal up the prophetic words in this book, for the time is near. Let the one who is doing harm continue to do harm. Let the one who is vile continue to be vile. Let the one who is righteous continue to live righteously. Let the one who is holy continue to be holy. God's saying right here, don't worry about the Great Commission anymore. What we have read over and over every Sunday through this series, at this point, he says, it's all good. If they're not here now, they ain't coming. How serious I need y'all to grasp this. Again, we read this every single Sunday, right? To keep our focus on the Great Commission. It's our number one job. So what Jesus tells us, go and create disciples. That's what I'm asking y'all to do. In this moment, this is how serious this is. He's going to look at us and he's going to say, well done, my good and faithful servant. Rest and quit worrying about everybody else. It's time to celebrate. Again, my question to you today, are you 100% confident that you're going to be celebrating with us? If you're not, I'm begging you today to come up here and talk to this prayer team. I don't want anybody walking out that door today that has any doubt in their mind that when he comes down here to get that church that you're going to be left behind. 